I'm Esther. And I'm Sean. I write about AI news here at Tech Target in Massachusetts. And I edit Esther's stories. We're here to talk with tech experts about everything AI and ChatGPT. And don't forget about Google Bard. Whether it's who's ahead in the generative AI race, the metaverse, digital twins, or even the latest in autonomous vehicles, we've got it covered. Right, Sean? Yep, we've got it covered. All right. Welcome back to another episode of the Targeting AI podcast. Our guest today is Michael Stewart, venture capitalist at M12. M12 is Microsoft Venture Fund. Michael started his career in investing at Applied Ventures, where he focused on AI, ML, hardware, silicon, photonics, high-precision robotics, and printed electronics. Before Applied Ventures, he was part of the technology department at Applied Materials and Intel Research, where I believe he was an engineer. Uh, he also completed postdoctoral work at in a DARPA or Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency program. Thank you so much for joining us on today's show. It's my pleasure. Thanks you. Thank you for having me on. Okay, so Esther gave me the the uh, kickoff question. So to kick it off, um, obviously everybody knows my, Microsoft, and some people might be familiar with M12. But can you talk about um, M12's relationship with Microsoft, and do you always fund uh, companies that align with Microsoft exactly, or sometimes they could be parallel, or even a competitor or a frenemy or something like that? Yeah, we love this question. Um, so at M12, our our, our our mission here really is to find signal, um, meaning uh, not just emerging technologies, but uh, technologies that are new and becoming new businesses that are transforming the market. And in a sense, um, these are usually technologies where Microsoft does not have an existing large product. So it's normal and expected that startups who are blazing the trail in, in new areas, um, and you know, we could uh, talk about some of the inflections later if you want, it's, it's not going to be a given that Microsoft just has like a competitive position in those markets, but we also don't take that into consideration necessarily with our investment decisions because we really do want to back uh, future leaders with an eye toward potential to collaborate with Microsoft post-investment. So that's really where the strategic thinking or strategic calculation or estimation comes into play. What does Microsoft not have or what do they not know as much about what might they need, um, which you can imagine in the last year or two has gotten to be a very hard question. Um, but cer certainly some of our startups work with Microsoft. Some of them work with Microsoft's competitors. Some of them compete directly with Microsoft. It's all okay because of the independent model that we have. I read a bit of your background, but I wanted to know a little bit about what led you to shift your focus from working like as an engineer within the technology department to becoming an investor. Well, I definitely pursued um, knowledge as as a as an arc of my academic career. I had, uh, if you guys are old enough to remember, the nanotechnology boom. Um, that was going to reshape electronics and, and replace Moore's law. This was something I felt that I had to be part of, you know, the post post Moore's law or post CMOS era and working at the deepest reaches of where the technology is developed in academia with um, uh, my postdoc was funded, funded in part by DARPA. And later when I went to Intel research and then even applied materials, again, you get to see, really where the cutting edge of this innovation is, but you also start to see in more realistic sense, 
where are the challenges to take these new technologies that transform the market to the market itself? Like what what actually gets it into the product? What makes it part of the of the everyday world you and I live in? And that's kind of where my journey started to depart was I just wanted, I felt like I had a good research um, understanding and scientific understanding. I was still a scientist. I call myself one sometimes, but I also feel like science, science and scientists need help at times to make the right connectivity to fast growing business. And I'd never really considered venture as a career bridge to do that, but it just kind of an opportunity presented itself that I tried out and stuck with now. So that's kind of in a succinct way. That's kind of like my career arc of the last eight or nine years. But just one quick question to clarify, are you, do you stay with hardware in your focus or do you do hardware and software? Hardware is a small part of the, okay. yeah, and more, you know, I, I think you'll see that you'll see that hardware as a category as well. Um, it's a, it's a, it's a pretty tough thing to define because it, it could mean like just all physical, you know, physical goods. And it is true that that area of investment changed, you know, it, it changed with the software boom, software is eating the world era, but we're going to just see it converge and reorganize in many different ways over the next couple of years. Okay. So uh, just to get into something else. So everybody knows about Microsoft's huge investment in open AI and almost this new paradigm that Esther has written about where uh, the, the model is partnership instead of acquisition. Oracle did it, Microsoft did it. Um, who else did it? Google, even Google and, and AWS. So do you look for the next open AI or are you looking for a more moderate growth trajectory <laughs> for the companies you invest in? Uh, yeah, bets like the, the investment in open AI are not, they're not venture bets from M12. So that's probably as much as I should say about that. Do we look for the next OpenAI? The answer is yes. I don't want to rat, rat hole too much on um, OpenAI itself, but I'd say what this new paradigm is, has, I think, brought some more people to thinking about is the everyday use of AI to your lives that a lot of people feel this will create another generation of daily use companies that we, you know, we may see right now. We may need to wait, you know, another couple of years to, to see those emerge, but but we certainly want to be on top of those. So there will be like the new, you know, top ten tech companies uh, that are being uh, created at this moment. There's also the infrastructure that allows it to happen, where we try to be close to the cutting edge there as well. Lately, this is less of a, I think, less of a. Uh, of a worry that Microsoft will be like left behind um, in, in this unfolding story, as much as making sure they are aware of the most attractive, most competitive, newest technologies that they could partner with. And, and to, to Esther's point, what this new era, era has definitely revealed is if you're creating a new technology that has this very large impact on the deployment of AI, there are going to be many more opportunities to work with the big tech companies via investment or just partnering itself um, than, than existed in the past because there's more experience in just how to plug those into an overall emerging story. And the agility of the big tech companies is very different. You can't really describe how they're behaving today um, in the same terms as a couple of years ago. Every, everyone is like shipping products like crazy, ready to break things apart 
sub in, substitute in new things. So this is a very ripe environment for startups that have a partnership mindset to work with the majors, I think. So to that point, does that mean that uh, acquisitions are dead and we're just going to perhaps just see just investment into and um, partnership? Because you said like this is obviously seems like the time for that kind of partnership and investment. And so not much acquisition is going on right now. Yeah, I mean, I can't comment on Microsoft's M&A, but I'd say um, it's on all, it's on all venture capitalists' minds um, what the M&A landscape will look like. Um, M&A and the stock market, you probably know, te- these the activity tends to actually be fairly correlated due to the need to sometimes um, sell equity to make big acquisitions. That's all I'll say is like, it's going to depend a lot on macro, on interest rates in the stock market. That's on our minds as VCs because it's not today's companies that are being formed. We're thinking about as much as the companies of just a few years ago that were on that SPAC or IPO path. We want to ensure the, that the healthiest ones can still remain great candidates for IPO. And I think um, you'll continue to see it, but I'm, I can't make any predictions on like the activity this year versus last. It's not my... Uh, not my wheelhouse. Okay, so this is an AI podcast, and so what? What uh, percentage of your investments or potential investments are AI vendors, or are they just? Or is everybody an AI vendor now, and they're vendors who happen to <laughs> use a lot of AI and generative AI? Yeah, I mean, so the areas that I cover, there's three areas that I cover on the team. There's other team. There's other team members who invest in things that are not strictly AI. So I, I lead the generative AI thesis, so just our, our overall direction and strategy in generative AI, gaming, and deep technology. Um, and my point of view on AI is we are going to continue to invest several deals this year in what I might call pure AI companies, um, either infrastructure or applications that are AI native um, or, or, or heavily heavily use AI as part of the USP. Um, that being said, there is a question of like, do all companies need to incorporate generative AI? The answer there is no. I do not think so um, in, in the sense that they don't need to incorporate it directly necessarily. They might, again, use services or just take advantage of better data, better um, better services in the cloud that are enabled by AI. I think it's what it comes down to is are the the founders are, is the management team savvy enough to understand where this is going, where the technology is going? Cause we are in a, we are in a different path now than just a few years ago, thanks to this. And what does it mean for my company? How do I position myself? So I'm way ahead a year or two from now when these technologies arrive. I think that's the kind of founders we're looking for already have that in their minds. They're already partially, their brains are partially, in 2026 or 2027 and they're already thinking of those strategies for what it means for a company that could benefit from ai at scale it may or may not be a model infrastructure tooling company it may actually be an application that simply knows there's going to be a lot more availability of the models cheaper or better and, and so on what would i what application would i build were that the case that's the that kind of founder sings out like as clear as day when you meet them. 
Yeah, just to f- kind of follow up on that, because I wonder, um, you've been kind of, you said you've been on this for like eight years or so. So before we had like maybe OpenAI or even like ChatGPT, we know that obviously generative AI has been running in like the background. So I wonder what your inv- investment strategy was in terms of were you already looking at generative AI companies before then? And then to also, my second question is to touch on what you just said. There's a lot from what I'm hearing from analysts is like, yes, it looks cool. The technology itself looks cool, but there's still problems from, I guess, enterprises as to like, how do we actually apply this? Do you have those conversations with some of the companies or the startups of like, how do you think the enterprises will actually be able to use this? Because a lot of people will say we haven't seen real world usage of this technology. Yeah, I mean, well, you're, you're picking the easy questions. Um, our mandate really is to look for these enterprise use cases, and I will confirm what what other people have said, what what other people are noticing, which is big brands, big big corporations are being careful about jumping in feet first into this um, for a couple of reasons. Um, one is certainly the use of data here, and, and we can talk about you know the era before. OpenAI and before LLMs in a second, but the use of, of data, you, you know, you've been hearing for years, data is the new oil, you know, data is a required ingredient in, in insights and so on. This is all from the big data era. The, the difference now is really um, all data still matters, but, but certain data that's really personal, accurate, relevant matters immensely more in this, in this era. In fact, it's, it is the absolutely, it's, it's the crux of, of extracting value versus being quite generic. And for big companies, that's a touchy subject. You know, that that's something where if you're talking about working with an AI service provider that may be, again, venture backed, um, small, but growing fast, hiring people, very different experience levels, operating, and again, as a private company without the standards of a, um, of a large enterprise they're used to, yeah, they're going to be experimenting and doing trials. I do think that that's one era area where we can take a very different approach because of the inherent security and control that's in Microsoft's frameworks and, and platforms. So when we've invested in AI companies that want to work with enterprise clients, we don't bring them in to meet with the bigger clients. It's a very important question, you know, when we're introducing new AI to big like retail Compute, uh, consumer brand, media, um, and uh, industry customers, mo- many of them, if not most of them, work mostly with Azure. And when they're learning about like what these new AI applications can do, we want to bring to them the, the reassurance that any company that's in our portfolio, especially, will be operating within guardrails that control the responsible use of AI, and then access and use of the data, especially the data that's in Azure, Again, we'll be subject to the controls that exist there. Those decisions themselves are not, again, part of what M12 does. We're grateful that that security exists, and we've seen it already start to help the startups we've invested in because, again, with patience, we want to show the right approach for the, the companies with this valuable data. The right approach to working with these new AI models is with a lot of security and control. I think later on, um, companies might behave more like consumers who are out there, as you've seen, creating wild images, text, music, videos, everything that's like blossoming at the speed of thought. 
um, this is not an option sometimes for SP100 company that has a lot of brand equity, as you can imagine. So I wonder now, like, as like, uh, uh, are you guys in audit on, in, like, do you have a lot of startups that you kind of have to say no to? Like when you're looking at the, the number of requests that you're getting in, because everyone, I think, like we mentioned before, kind of wants to be the next big open AI and you guys are looking for the next open AI. So how do you determine between the weed from the, you know, the fruit or whatever? <laughs> I don't know. The weed from the chaff? Um, my... Yeah, I mean, first to, to your question, yes, we reject or we, we pass on ninety-nine percent of the companies we see. That's that's pretty normal. It's not so much like no one is getting it or no one meets the bar, but first the size of the team and the strategies we employ after investment have a fairly high overhead of their own. Um and we're not really trying to cover, you know, like cover the market, like one investment in each application area or one investment in each layer of the canonical tech stack or something like that. We're again, looking for the catalytic areas that might be especially useful to Microsoft or where a startup could benefit extremely well from working with Microsoft in a strategy, you know, where we're thinking of a year or two in advance. Um, so the th the criteria we are really looking for um, do include things like willingness and suitability for working with enterprise. Um, when we think about, you know, how ready is the team, there's a technology lens we look through. There's also a team and experience and personality lens we look through. There's probably as much criteria that goes into, do you know how to work with a company like Microsoft as there is, what would you do with them? Because the, the size mismatch, you know, back to the subject of partnering, the size mismatch here is larger than you would have seen in like the big data SaaS era companies, you, you know, the tech companies usually were not partnering until companies reached a certain quite large size, you know, maybe call it 50 million plus revenue um, or something, you know, a, a couple rounds away from going public. Let's say this current era, everything is, is up for discussion. It depends on just, again, how ready are you to work with a organization like Microsoft or its partners, um, including OpenAI or any of the other startups that are already working with Microsoft? Okay, I just wanted to go back to the wheat and the chaff thing one minute. Um, I'm an editor and our job is to separate the wheat from the chaff and print the chaff. Um, that's the old, that's a reporting. <laughs> right, <laughs> that's great. Chaff, publish the chaff. That's the old reporter's um, view because I was a reporter for 30 years before I was an editor. So, um, but now I know all the reporters' tricks since I was a reporter. Um, the all right. So going back to OpenAI, I have to ask this question. So we all watched this drama unfold with the board versus Sam Altman and whatever. And I, I'd like to ask your perspective not on that particular thing necessarily, but on are you concerned with the alignment of the boards of the companies you 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 back, the alignment with the staff? Are there any other instances where you have a nonprofit yeah. and a profit? But just in general, how do you look at that issue? Yeah, very, very uh, hot question. Um, I, I do want to just say I just cannot comment at all on that, on that affair. Um, but, but except for one thing that the, you know, the structure of OpenAI is utterly different from any startup I've ever seen, or I think anyone's ever seen. That does, that does to some degree influence, you know, what was happening. 
but the boards and governance issue is very much top of mind. I read in the, the journal, or I think it was in Wall Street Journal, I read somewhere that founders are seeking to um, employ early on in this foundations of their companies, you know, dual class voting structures or supermajority or others for co- protections for common. I think in some ways, if you really talk to a lot of VCs, you're going to see um, a split between VCs who feel their their way into great deals is to be as founder friendly as possible versus those who are, you know, managing a fund and just think only about return. The second category rarely shows its face on Twitter or any podcasts or ever because there's just no need to, but it is the fiduciary duty of a fund. So if you're a founder out there and listening to this, here's what I want to say. As a VC, it's very difficult for me to accept where investors who are buying a portion of the company um, have no say or even protection of their own investment as the company grows. So we do look critically at uh, at structures that are really intended to foil the influence of boards. In a different type of podcast, you might have people debating, I just believe in the founder and I'm here along for the ride. I'm here to here to contribute advice, help, but otherwise stay out of the way. I think we can be VCs like that too. But at the same time, when the company needs direction, again, that's aligned with investors, it needs to grow, it needs to seek exit, it needs to seek return on investment. We can't be afraid to say no to those structures and just want to say from M12's point of view, I'm generally opposed to doing that and we look out for it you know, from the beginning. It doesn't mean that you can't have protective structures to reassure founders and founding teams because it's it's difficult to it's difficult to hire people who feel like well the CEO could be booted out by the board. I just want to say it's not that simple. It actually is not that simple. But as long as those structures have a way of going away so that the board does actually run the company, that's the commercial world's norm. As you get to become a public company, you must become that type of board. So probably this is a debate that needs more active voices from both sides of the table. But I'll just say like the AI story and how fast things are moving, how irresistible it is, does not change anything I just said about the duty of investors to their funds. So that's probably like probably going to play out with some of the companies where there was a really imbalanced cap table in the beginning is that the investors will simply have to force it back to the norm. It'll have to revert to the mean. Yeah, that was actually good. But I wonder, as you were speaking, I'm, I'm like, obviously, this question of ownership, which is, I think, what you're kind of saying, is not really ownership, but how much say as an investor do you have in the company you invest in it? I also wonder about other things as well. As a reporter, I'm seeing things about, like, uh, you know, is large language models, small language model, open source models. I wonder if you guys are in, in the thick of that, also considering these uh, trends that we're seeing in the market when it comes to AI, not just the next AI company that's going to be big, but like, what about the next AI company that's moving towards the way the market is moving? Because some would say like, maybe the market is moving towards smaller models. Some would say the market is moving towards open source, model, open source models. How do you approach those kind of startups? So I've been very bullish from the very from the beginning about the potential of open source here. I think you could go back to 2022, 2022 and some of the real breakthroughs um, that we saw again in the the breakthroughs in the market, not necessarily the technology point releases, but um, 
some of the projects like Dolly Mini or Stable Diffusion Local. And, you know, when the story is finally told, we will need to give credit to how good of a job those projects or, or companies did at activating um, users who perhaps were not either as familiar with working in the cloud, did not have the need um, for, for the cloud scale models or, or otherwise wanted to just do development on their own you know, vein of creativity and, t- and technical contribution. Since then, there was some skepticism as to like, can this enter the, the text generation space? Can this enter the code generation space? Well, the answer is clear today. There is a large variety of models of different sizes to serve um, the needs of applications, situations, and overhead. And I think that's going to continue. Like the direction that GPT-4 and beyond is going will be very, very difficult for a startup or open source or anything to match or exceed. But that may not always be the only use of this technology, as you're pointing out. And at Microsoft, there was this beautiful paper uh, written called Textbooks is All You Need. It's kind of like a little flip on its head of attention is all you need type of paper about training smaller models on very relevant data for certain tasks. And this is work done by Sebastian Bubeck and some other really smart people at Microsoft, um, where instead of talking about hundreds of billions of parameters models, you're talking about one or two that can work for the applications that you need. You're gonna, you should definitely expect that trend, that's going to remain the norm. You're, you should expect that trend to also get more customized toward devices, heterogeneous architecture. And that's another flowering of the perhaps like edge endpoint device um, LLM that might be part of the workload. And then this thing that's in the cloud, that would be more of like an oracular like use the final truth or the final answer, although there's some <laughs> caveats there too. I mean, but but what the big models can do, if you if you really read these papers about specialization, it's astounding what the big models can accomplish, but the cost scale latency will always leave an opening for these other models to be used. And again, the application developer, device maker will make those decisions in their own prudent ways. Okay, so um, M12 has been busy investing in some generative AI startups like Typeface. But so we've heard going into the new year that last year was the year of acceleration of generative AI. This is the year of monetization of generative AI. Do you agree with that? And I kind of don't because I think there's still more acceleration yeah. to be done. You can't ask the startup to be to start monetizing things immediately in high volume right away. Um, how do you view that issue? the development of generative AI, are we still in the very early stages or are we already accelerating into making money right away off of this? Yeah, and this is the, where the, the challenge of, of talking about startups as a, as a category gets difficult because I would give different answers for different categories here. Um, if you're in the application space, uh, you're not, I can't really say something directly about typeface, although they're one of our companies. You know, typeface is is doing well commercially. Other other startups that generate text or advertising content or something like that, those have also been doing well commercially. If you're an investor in that kind of company, it's absolutely reasonable that you say, pedal to the metal, time to make money, time to get customers signed up, time to convert 
trials, time to convert free users to to paid. And um, I would say it doesn't mean there's no acceleration left in those areas, but it does mean, hey, it's time to make money once you found this product market fit. The longer you wait, the more you expose yourself to your competitors reaching that epiphany earlier. Now on the infrastructure and tooling and kind of cutting edge, like what um, Esther was just asking about, new models, new tools, it could be a while. You you should probably expect these to have a deep tech-like payoff where there's a, a large or longer period of time, an extended period of time of investment, incubation, improvement um, to build a highly acquirable company or again, maybe public it's it's a it's not that many infra companies that, like that that have gone public, but um, absolutely do not do not consider like things to be slowing down. They will be going much much faster. The problem that from the startup point startup founders mindset that they might struggle with is the funding environment this year. There's a debate about it. It might be tough. That can sometimes in people's minds conflate to the technology is not going fast because there's not a lot of investment activity. If you've been around in the tech industry long enough, you've seen that's not the case. Like actually some of the worst times economically led to explosive flowering of amazing startups, like, like entire generations of amazing startups. I don't think you need tougher times for it. That's a kind of an economist type of question. But I think getting startups more thinking thinking about how they do monetize is a good thing all around. Um, so we will definitely see much, much better models this year. At the end of this year, you never have said nothing changed from January. Um, but I think you'll also have a lot of startups who will have reached that point of we got to figure out a way to make money. I, I, I want to ask a little bit about your shift at M12, but I also wanted to before we go there, go into the idea of like uh, the re most recent controversies we're seeing. Um, and I would like to get your perspective from it, of it from a VC. Uh, obviously we had this open AI New York times lawsuit uh, and we have a lot of copyright losses all last year. We had Getty and stability. Uh, we had the music and one as well. And a couple more that I'm sure I'm missing authors and whatnot. And then we also have problems with hallucinations with these new models and with these new systems. And with, and then we have responsible AI in general. As a VC, how do you weigh these controversies? Uh, how do you weigh them as in the companies you're looking at or the companies you're already invested in? Do you guys have a say or what are your thoughts on those? Well, okay. Let me disclaim a few things and don't, you know, don't edit it out. But I mean, I can't comment on any lawsuits that affect Microsoft, OpenAI or any, you know, affiliates of ours. I'd say... From the data provenance, the, the data um, curation point of view, yes, from the very beginning, we always look at our startups, um, management of the data going into models, post-training, prompting. This kind of goes back to the guardrails approach. Even though the you know the these guardrails are not part of M12, the fund, we get inspired by and look back to responsible AI principles that Microsoft has published. And from the point of view of like technologies that have used data, that's fair use that, that generate, you know, derivative works. Um, all I will say from the investor's point of view is, yeah, I mean, these are, 
these are potentially risky positions in the companies that are not thinking of strategies um, around these uh, these complaints. Um, I think you'll probably see in the end all holders of IP that's really valuable will wind up having partnered with AI in different ways. It's just it's simply it's simply not the behavior of the IP industry to just sit on things. It's the behavior to do some kind of licensing or allowance of use. Um, when startups address this question, the things we're we are looking for and have been looking for are that sounds like a great use um, to ensure adherence, you know, provenance to to ensure responsible use of data. That's a wide open opportunity for some startups to to capitalize on. And some of the companies in our portfolio are working on that. Um, going forward, I think you will see more inspiring ideas of how to take advantage of user-generated content, feed it back into models using reinforcement learning or other, you know, other techniques to to feed back into the models, and then wind up with better and better products that reward creators. Um, what will it look like exactly? Will it be just like the streamer, you know, you know, mobile video type of world, or will it be something new? I have some theories on that, but I think we're still in the era of, uh, like Sean was saying, we're kind of in the, are we accelerating or are we making money question? You know, like some of these are actually operational questions that founders, when they have a great strategy here, we're very interested to potentially work with them. But I found that um, there's a lot of moving pieces out in the world, so it's hard to, it's hard for a startup to really come out with a coherent strategy yet. But but soon, maybe this year we'll see a lot more. You know, we'll see a lot more companies speaking openly about what those what those strategies would look like. Okay, in a related uh, issue, how do recent regulatory developments, or the, you know, whether it's the executive order, whether it's the uh, European Union uh, rules on AI and, and GDPR. How do, do you do you consider uh, compliance and go- governance and um, those issues in your in, when you look at startups? Yeah, and that's back to the enterprise category of like, hey, if you really want to do this type of you know work with enterprises, you need to be prepared in 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 the sense of just you know not just like saying it, like just checking a box. I mean, you need to have staff on the team who are ready to work with these entities. No, it is, you know, it's regulation. And as VCs, I think we're, we're wishing there was more free, uh, um, more free uh, ability of startups to just, to just grow and, and work with customers. But at the same time, we understand what these guardrails are. And for the portfolio, because of our affiliation with Microsoft, you know, every startup that we work with must abide by all of these regional, uh, national laws, and they must also have staff and, and experienced personnel who know how to implement them in a, in a company in a meaningful way. So I don't think anyone should expect less of that. They should expect more, but it's manageable. I mean, the, the, the fact is it's manageable, which is what the, the mobile and big data eras have shown us. So I wanted to um, learn a little bit more about um, M12 strategy. I know that um, from what I read, uh, M12 has uh, not in the past, before this past year, M12 did not necessarily prioritize investment with just Microsoft. However, that recently did change. What led to that change and what has been your result of that change? 
Yeah, around the time that I joined, um, you know, Michelle had just taken over M12. I came from a more strategically aligned fund prior to this, and um, I was also an employee of Applied Materials before I joined Applied Ventures, which I think just helped in the overall empathy I felt perhaps for the the business units, um, because their relationship to a venture fund is a it's a very complex thing to describe even now that I've done this for several years. It means thinking a little bit about what really helps these products and teams. And then it's not always possible for investment to be a helper, you know, for, for what is a strategic goal. Um, there are cases where it works and cases where it doesn't, in other words. So when I came into M12, um, there was a priority to ensure that the companies we we're investing in did have some potential to work with Microsoft, that the, that the fund was acting, again, in a fiduciary way, and that we were doing deals that were really th- taking into account what that plan of working with Microsoft might be in a mean, in a more meaningful way. So I wouldn't say was it like there wasn't any single event that perhaps led, led up to the change, but it's just normal in the life cycles of these types of funds to go through more independent, more strategically aligned eras, I guess, or, or strategy shifts. And for me, it was really not a a big burden because I love thesis development. I love thinking ahead about what a picture of the world looks like in a couple of years and what our investment strategies today should be to address that, especially for things as fast moving as generative AI. Now, when you're in a mode, when the fund is really trying to be more of an independent tier one VC, like a financial VC, Although those funds can talk about thesis development, they're still having to be opportunistic and jump on great deals and then craft the thesis ex post facto. I don't mean to like shade anybody else's thesis work, but it does not compare. Like we actually can draw upon the roadmaps and again, behaviors of a large company. There's a giant research uh, wing attached to Microsoft that's almost like a university. That gives us a lot more perspective to think about the future than just what are the great teams? What will they be building as companies? And should we invest? We take that into account too. But I would say that's, in essence, the the shift that we undertook is ensuring the companies that we were investing in had the criteria of great venture deals, but also had meaningful impact on the startup and Microsoft as a great venue for collaboration You know, in a year or two. That becoming the priority, again, was not much of a stretch for me but it was not um, at the same time, it was not the same model that M12 had had before. Thank you, Michael. I have one final like wrapping, looking into the future. One is how do you think generative AI will continue to shape in this year as a VC? And then is there any like new upcoming technology that you think will overshadow generative AI that you guys are kind of keeping into or have insight into? Great, great question. Yes, I think, you know, the next year we're going to see much more activity, especially in conversational AI. What I'm really looking forward to, and again, I don't know if it comes this year or shortly after, but there's a lot of people who've watched this movie, Her, and kind of tried to infer, oh, this is this is a vision of the future. It shows a plausible, if not um, science fiction movie-like, you know, that, that exaggerates some things. It shows a plausible way of a, of a human's everyday interaction with AI that's, in a sense, reassuring, useful, and personal. What I would say is I believe in something very much like that conversational banter 
with the machine. It's not the only movie that shows it well, but you could probably separate the like emerging super intelligence AGI thing from it, which I, you know, just personally, I think is a very fascinating and tantalizing subject to always be thinking about, but it has very little realistic impact on people's lives as much as this proliferation of endpoint devices that are responding to this idea of, hey, Esther throughout the day could probably benefit from this companion again, like the little angel or devil or whatever on your shoulder who's talking to you, asking for advice or, or giving you hints. That use case sounds very good to me. And what has been missing from that, because it, it could have happened in the you know past, in the preceding years, What's missing from that has been the quality, the accuracy, just the the overall usefulness of what the AI can do. And this wave of, like you said, small models, large models, orchestration between them is going to continue to make it possible for this to be shipped to you. AI is going to be shipped to you through your phone, through your you know earbud, another device that you're wearing. You probably have seen a couple that were you know, coming out last week or two. I'm a very strong believer in something like that breaking through. Um, I think it's going to be the next big thing that gets everybody uh, excited because for the most part, the the code generation, the, the text generation stories of generative AI are reaching a relatively small cohort of the public. That doesn't mean there's no usefulness of these technologies to those people. It just means the experience has not been pushed to them in a way that draws them in, gets them excited and shows that use case. That's all that we're waiting for. And again, it could be any company that does this, but it'll be conversational. It'll be far better than you experienced in the kind of voice assistant era. Um, I expect, I expect our companies and Microsoft's technology to be a big part of it, but many of the other tech companies and startups will be in it as well. So the next thing I, you know, do think is the VC industry is going to have to say something or do something about the large number of startups that were founded just, just in the past year or, or two, um, to address, to address AI that move much faster than the startups themselves did. Um, this is going to be, I think it's going to be a quite difficult time, um, for seed and series A founders that did not pursue at least, you know, to Sean's earlier question, did not pursue an answer to their own investors or to outside investors. How does this company endure? How does it make money? Nearly everybody that's in AI, and I think even in, if you're in the info side, you need to start thinking about some unit economics that give you the sustain, sustained advantage and how to keep focused on those as, uh, as touchstones for everything you're doing. Um, because it's... Uh, the difference between this type of AI and say, say computer vision or other things before it is it's going to remain non-free for these things to run, whether it's your own power, your own device, whether it's in the cloud. Um, this capability is still fairly expensive compared to, again, just running an operating system or, or running your personal machine. With that in mind, if your ambition is to reach millions of customers or a large part of the globe, um, Unless you want the company to go bankrupt at like super speed, you need to make sure you're getting people to pay for what they're experiencing, or you're working on this cost side of the equation to bring it down to a level that's that's 
going to be profitable someday. All investors are going to start asking questions like that. Thanks for the movie tip. I'm going to go watch that right away. (laughs) (laughs) And maybe try out an aura pendant as well. Yeah, I mean, um, I I really love this conversation. Thank you, Esther and Sean. It was really a pleasure chatting with you. I'm really looking forward to what this year brings. Yeah, thank you so much, Michael. Um, To our listeners, please catch up with Michael on LinkedIn. Um, And just continue to leave a review and subscribe so that we can continue to grow and evolve. Thank you again, and we will see you next time on the Targeting AI Podcast.